0: God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, that I may make an altar there to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El-Bethel, because their God had revealed himself to him, when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon-Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Uh, We're in the middle of a series in Genesis. We've been going through this series since um, back in the fall, and we will finish it by the end of the summer, I promise. And uh, after Genesis, we're going to do a short vision series on who are we and our core values of gospel-centered, well, not gospel-centered, but sorry, gospel culture, sound doctrine, and, uh, and multi-ethnicity. And then we're going to go into the book of John. So just to give you a trajectory, that's where we're heading uh, for the rest of the summer and into the fall. And John is gonna take a little while, okay? So we're going back into another long series after this one. But um, to, today we're in Genesis. And what's happening in Genesis right now is we are, um, we are following up with what happened last week with Jacob. And we're in this chapter 35, And we're finishing the Jacob story. Now, Jacob doesn't die, but the story gets passed on to Joseph after this. So next week, we start the Joseph narrative that basically goes through the rest of Genesis. And so this is like the the series finale. They're trying to tie a lot of the loose strings together. And so there's a lot of different things that happen in, in chapters 35. And we're going to do 36 as well today. We didn't read it all because then we would run out of time if we just read it all. Um, but today we're closing up these stories and we're closing up both Jacob and Esau if you remember Jacob and Esau are, are the two sons of Isaac. Uh, Jacob is the, the chosen son he steals Esau's uh, blessing from his brother uh, from his brother uh, he he steals it through a variety of different ways. First, he makes his brother promise his birthright for a pot of stew. And next, he dresses up like his brother and then literally steals his father's blessing by pretending to be his brother. And so today, we're, we're looking at this story. And, and what we've seen, a couple weeks ago, we saw Jacob and Esau actually reconcile. Uh, Esau wanted to kill Jacob, so Jacob fled from the land for 20 years um, and lived with his uncle Laban. That's where he met his four wives and got married to them all. And then we see Jacob and Esau reconcile and now, verse chapter 34 was a quite a heavy one if you were with us, because in chapter 34, what we saw is Jacob actually didn't make it all the way to the Promised Land. Instead, he stopped in the land of Shechem, and he lived in the land of Shechem for 10 years. He was almost obedient to God, but not quite. And while he was living in the land of Shechem, it all came to a disastrous end because they took his daughter. And uh, the, the people of Shechem, the prince of Shechem, he raped his daughter and then he wanted to marry his daughter. And Jacob considered it so that he might gain power, but instead uh, his sons took justice into their own hands. And after uh, they asked the men to be circumcised, they went and destroyed the entire city. And so Jacob is now in a place of chaos, he's in a place of fear. He says at the end of chapter 34, What have you done to me, my enemies? They're going to come against me. We can't beat all of these nations. And so what Jacob needs is to recommit himself to the Lord. As we finish this narrative about Jacob and Esau, I want us to consider this. What really sets these two apart? Because as I just told the story about Jacob, you might notice this. Jacob is not that great of a guy, all right? It's not that God loved Jacob and didn't like Esau because Jacob is just a wonderful model son. And Esau, he's just a ruffin. He's just nothing. I don't even know what a ruffin is. It's just the word that came to my mind. Esau, he's, he's, a, he's a terrible guy. No, when we look here, Esau's matured. He's grown up. In chapter 36, we get his entire genealogy. So he actually becomes a great nation, the great nation of Edom. He's prosperous. He looks like he's, he's an all right guy. And so we're really left with the question of like, what does it mean to be the promised child of God? What does it mean that Jacob is the promised son? And is there really anything different between the two? Why are they different? Have you ever noticed how loosely we throw out, oh, he's a good guy. I mean, I can meet someone for like four minutes in the street and then vouch for their character. Be like, oh yeah, seems like a good guy. I don't know. And then we're left with a question What is the difference between a good guy and a gospel person? What does it mean to be a gospel person? Because if you look at Jacob, Jacob is the one that we would say, "Uh, yeah, gospel person, okay? Someone who is loved by God, who is following God. But then when you look at his life, Jacob is a royal screw-up. And he's always doing selfish things. He's always thinking, how can I get the leg up here? He's manipulative and conniving, he doesn't seem like that much of a better person than Esau. And so, in this passage, we learn this about gospel people. We learn this important thing that it's not about morality necessarily, but gospel people make a regular habit of recommitting their lives to the Lord. Gospel people make a regular habit of recommitting their lives to the Lord. If you're not regularly recommitting yourself to God, then you're not a gospel person. Because look, Jacob is not a great person. He's not an extremely moral person. But what Jacob does do, and we see him do it often, we see him do it here again, is recommit himself to the Lord. He remains open to hearing what God has to say and committing his ways to God. I have four points for us. First, the need for recommitment. Second, the process of recommitment. Third, the promise of recommitment. And fourth, the results of recommitment. The need, the process, the promise, and the results. Let's jump in. The need for recommitment. All right, so so here we have Jacob. And I've already explained to you what happened in chapter 34, and it's obvious that Jacob needs to recommit his life to the Lord. He he was almost faithful to God's command. God commanded him after he left his uncle Laban's home to go back into the promised land, to make it back to Bethel, and instead of going all the way to Bethel, what does he do? He makes it almost all the way to Bethel and he stops 20 miles shy in the land of Shechem. And he feels like this is obedience. He settles down in Shechem for 10 years. But what we see is that almost obedience is not obedience whatsoever, because while it didn't happen immediately, he didn't see the consequences of his refusal to follow God right at once. Instead, he saw it 10 years later. He got down the road, and he was far from God. His, obedient, his lack of re- obedience, his almost obedience, results in disaster for Jacob. And so in, verse, in chapter 35, we see that Jacob has to commit himself to the Lord. It's not the first time he's done it. Let me just recap the times that Jacob has committed himself to the Lord. The first time that Jacob committed himself to the Lord is when he stole his brother's blessing and he's running away because his brother wants to kill him. And on the road, he, he takes a nap with a rock for a pillow and he sees a staircase to God with angels ascending and descending and the Lord speaks to him. And then he names that place Bethel which means the house of God. And this is the first time that Jacob really encounters God, and I think that it's his conversion moment. And so he commits himself to the Lord at that point. He goes into the land of Laban, and he married, he gets married, he has children, and then he eventually decides he wants to leave Laban because Laban is more of a scoundrel than he is. And he gets out of the land of Laban, and again, he meets with God on the road to meet his brother and reconcile He's afraid of his brother. It's been 20 years, but he's still afraid that his brother's trying to kill him. And he wrestles with God. And while he's wrestling with God, the Lord touches his hip and uh, leaves him permanently kind of with a, walking with a limp. Um, but he gives him a new name also. He gives him the new name of Israel, which means wrestles with God. Doesn't, that is, isn't that a great name to name someone? Uh, but this is, this is what the Lord names Jacob at that point. And now we're back at Bethel, where it all started. And that's where God has called him to go. And I want you to see this, that following God requires constant reflection and recommitment to God. Following Jesus is never a one-time decision. You know, a lot of churches do this thing called an invitation. Uh, Not churches around here. Some of you may have grown up it, it, so there are probably some churches around here that do this, but you may have grown up in these traditions that at the end of the service, they would invite people to walk down the aisle to make their decision to follow the Lord. And the problem with that, it's a good thing because we you want people to decide to follow the Lord, but the problem with it is when you put too much emphasis on that one-time decision, you neglect to emphasize the fact that you have to constantly commit yourself to follow the Lord. And so I know a lot of people who did their decision and then ended up, not following Jesus with their life, but they felt like they had assurance that they were going to heaven because they made their decision. But hope in a decision is not the same thing as hope in Christ. And so the Christian life requires constant commitment to God. Following Jesus is not a one-time decision. It's a regular habit of recommitting. We have to recommit ourselves to God over and over again. And here's why. It's because our hearts have a natural pull toward selfishness. Our hearts are like a boat at sea. The wind is is blowing and the current is streaming. And unless we are constantly checking what direction we're going in, we will be pushed in the way of the world We will go with the flow of things unless we are constantly recommitting ourselves to true north, to the direction that we must go. The Christian life needs constant, regular recommitment. You might be able to make it for a little while without checking which direction you're going. You might be able to make it for a little while. But then, if you wait too long, like Jacob did, 10 years will go by and you will be far, far from God. And the consequences of your sin and your selfishness will catch up with you, eventually. We all know people who have walked with Jesus and then they go their own way. But true Christians will always recommit themselves to God. Many of you feel fine in your relationship with Jesus right now, but have you evaluated? When was the last time you checked the instruments? When was the last time you really sought, am I walking with the Lord? You might not be seeing the consequences of giving in to the flow of selfishness right now. But when was the last time you really evaluated where you are with Him? One of my favorite questions, it's just a simple question. And I love it when people ask me, and I love it when when People, when I ask people, and they're like, ah, "I haven't thought about it in a long time," it's just where are you at with your walk with the Lord? Just a simple question. Let's ask each other that question. Where are you at? How are the instrument's looking? You are you pointing in the right direction? Are you fighting against the flow of things? And look, friends, this is why we just need the regular habits. This is Christianity 101 stuff, but a lot of us need this 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 uh, regular reminder that hey, if you do these two or three things. It's going to help you check those instruments. It's going to help you to be pointed in the right direction. So easy. Open your Bible and read it. (laughs) Every once in a while, every day, for 10 minutes. Open your Bible. If you're not regularly reading your Bible, if you don't have a reading plan, we'll give you a reading plan, but if you haven't done it in a long time, just start with the Gospel of John because we're going to be doing it soon. It's a great place to start. Read it. Ask the Lord what he wants to say to you and pray. Seek the Lord in prayer. Just a regular habit to help you check the instrument. Also, this is one of the main reasons, one of the, one of the most important reasons that you need to be at church every week. So checking the instruments, is my heart pointed in the right direction? It's just another nudge going that direction. All right, let's, let's keep going. That's the need for recommitment. Now let's look at the process of recommitment. Recommitment requires Repentance. This is what I'm telling you, recommitment requires repentance, and repentance is a turning from your sin. We see Jacob do that in this passage. Before we look at Jacob's repentance, I want to explain to you what repentance means. I love the way that the Puritan Thomas Watson puts this. He says this, repentance is a grace of God's spirit, whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Let me just say that one more time. Repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and outwardly reformed, visibly reformed. Repentance is a spiritual medicine made up of six special ingredients, a spiritual medicine made up of six special ingredients, sign of sin, sorrow for sin, confession of sin, shame for sin, hatred For sin and turning from sin. Now, I need to very carefully explain that repentance is not the same thing as regret. I know a lot of us have sinned and we've regretted our sin. We've seen the consequences of our sin. We felt bad about our sin. But that does not mean that we've turned. To the Lord. It does not mean that we've given up our sin. It does not mean that we've asked for forgiveness. It does not mean that we have repented of our sin. You can feel regret without the Spirit of the Lord. Many people feel regret, but only a Christian can truly repent of their sin in a way that's turning to the Lord and following. After him. And that is what we see Jacob do in Genesis 35. It starts with the word from the Lord. God calls out to him before Jacob calls out to God. And isn't it a great thing that he does that often? He does that for me often as well. God said to Jacob, Arise. Go up to Bethel. Uh, We're getting a little clues on what's going to happen here. He says, go up to Bethel. When people go up to a place, it's often a sacred place. Go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So God called out to Jacob. He didn't wait for Jacob to get his life together. He called him over to Bethel, to the house of the Lord, which is what Bethel means. And it's been 30 years since he was last in Bethel. It's been a long time and this is what Jacob did. He responded to God. He said, so Jacob said, verse two, so Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. And so this is the way that Jacob recommits his life to the Lord. First, he puts away the foreign gods. He makes this public declaration to his entire family, to the entire crew that's with him. He probably has an entourage that's with him. And he makes this public declaration. We're doing this. He tells them all to put away their foreign gods and to change their clothes. We need a new beginning. Purify yourselves. We're going to make this right with the Lord. Then they're going to go to where God is and they're going to worship him the process of recommitting yourself to God, it always involves putting away foreign gods and going to the real God. Now, most of us don't worship literal foreign gods. I have seen it. But, most of us don't. Instead, we worship the gods of our culture, which are foreign gods to God, but they don't call themselves God, but they do demand all of our time they demand us to make continual sacrifices with the promise that they can give it, make us happy the gods of sex and money power achievement these gods can run our minds and they can run our lives and we can make continual sacrifices to them and what Jacob is teaching us is that to worship the one true god is to put apart put aside all other gods and here's something i've realized in the 18 years of ministry that I've been doing now, and I think I'm just now realizing it fully, is that the demons do not mind if you add another God as long as you keep them. And so if you are still worshiping the gods of our age and you throw in Jesus, they're not that bothered. It's not addition that bothers the evil powers, but it's subtraction. When you try to forsake them, now that's a fight. And that's what Jacob is teaching us here, that true repentance and true recommitment requires a subtraction of the things that we were worshiping previously. Our God is the only God, and he demands that we give up all other gods. And we have to keep on giving them up. Repentance is a way of life. Church, if you go a whole week without repenting, without seeing some way that your heart is being led wayward, you've gone too long. If you go a whole week without seeing a way that your heart has gone wayward, you've gone too long. The Christian life is a perpetual process of recommitting ourselves to God. We have to keep very close watch in our life. Now, let's look at the promise of recommitment. After Jacob commands his family to give up their foreign gods and to go with him to Bethel, God responds to Jacob with a promise. Now, this promise uh, that we read about, uh, that Matt read for us earlier in Genesis chapter 35, it is a throwback promise. Uh, Now, you would have to be really watching for the Easter eggs to see this one, okay? This is like one of those um, videos that they put on YouTube where it's like, hey, let's let's show you the finale of this season and how it throws back to everything in season one because we got some season one throwbacks here, okay? So what's happening here is that he, he receives this promise from God, but it is a total throwback to Genesis chapter 17 when God spoke to Abram and gave the promise of circumcision to Abram And what happened with Abram is exactly this. This is the formula that he followed. God is referred to in Genesis 17 as El Shaddai, God of power. He changes Abram's name to Abraham, and then he promises to make him fruitful and to build him into a great nation. Now let's look at the promise that God gives to Jacob. Genesis chapter 35, verse 9. So God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. This is very reminiscent to Abram and Abraham. So he called his name Israel. Even though he'd already received the name Israel, God is emphasizing it here. And it's to throw back to Genesis chapter 17. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. There's El Shaddai, the same God name that that showed up. Be fruitful and multiply. That's something we've seen before in Genesis 17. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I give to Abraham and Isaac, I give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. It's the exact same formula. And here's the point that the author is trying to make with this formula. The author is trying to say that Jacob really is the promised child. Though he has gone wayward, he's coming back, and he really has received the same promise that Abraham received. God is telling Jacob, though you have constantly need to recommit to me, I have constantly been committed to you. I am absolutely committed to fulfilling the promise that I made to your grandfather, Abraham. And I'm with you, and I'm going to fulfill that. Though we often have to recommit ourselves to God, Church, God is absolutely committed to us. Though we often have to recommit ourselves to God, God is absolutely committed to us. When we repent, this is what God does. He responds with reaffirmation. So let me ask you this question. Do you feel distant from God? Has it, does it feel like it's been a long time since he's spoken, since he's given you that affirmation, that warmness? And let me ask you this question too. When was the last time you repented of sin? Because when we repent of sin, the Lord responds with reaffirmation. This is the promise of recommitment. Have you tried confessing? Have you tried rededicating your life to the Lord? Because the sin in our lives separates us, and we're, none of us are without that. We constantly have to be recommitting ourselves to the Lord. Point four, the results of recommitment. Now we see... The results of Jacob recommitting himself, and uh, if you humble yourself, let me. If, if, let's say you're you're going your own way. You've been walking your own way for ten years. You decide to recommit yourself to the Lord, and what do you expect to happen? For most of us, we expect our lives to change for the better, and praise God that happens oftentimes. But that's not what happened for Jacob, and it's not what always happens for us. Because when you look at Jacob, man, things get rough. Okay. So first, Deborah, Deborah, someone we haven't heard of much in here, but it gives you a little explainer of what's happening. Rebecca's nurse. Now, who's Rebecca? That's Jacob's mom. Okay. So this woman brought up Rebecca. So this is a very old woman. His mom's nurse, and she dies. Not Auntie Deborah, come on. Like now she's dying after he's recommitted himself. She's been around forever. Then we see in this passage as we go on that Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, dies in childbirth while giving birth to Benjamin. And that's a that's a pain that Jacob never gets over uh, for the rest of his life. He he is he is struck with that pain. That, that is the woman that, he, that was the woman that he worked fourteen years to, to achieve to, to get from Laban and that 's a pain that goes with him as we 'll see as we go through Genesis and she gives birth to Benjamin the irony here this is the woman who said, "Give me children or i 'll die and the minute that Jacob gives her children too she dies and this is a weird one verse 22 I, you know, I don't want to skip the weird passages. That, that's your commitment from me uh, as I've gone through chapter 34. Although sometimes I do, okay, and you call me out about it. Um, but verse 22, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Well, that's a weird one, right? And uh, what's happening here is that Jacob's oldest son, Reuben, he sleeps with his, his concubine, Bilhah. And so Bilhah is Rachel's um, handmaiden that was given to him. And you can go back and watch, listen to that sermon if you missed it about the handmaidens and whatnot. Not something endorsed by the Lord. Um, and what's Reuben doing here? So Bilhah is Rachel's handmaiden and Reuben's mother is Leah. And so what we see here is probably an assortment of a couple of different things. This is a power play for Reuben. Uh, You see this, it happened at other times in the Bible, it happened with one of David's sons as well, that sometimes the son that wants to claim the the throne after his father will go and take one of his father's concubines to show his power and his, his dominance in that way. But here there's probably another thing going on in that Rachel just died, who was obviously Jacob's favorite wife. And Reuben wants to... Assure his mother Leah's spot as fa- new favorite wife, and so what he does is he goes and he, he kind of ruins Bilhah, the the main competitor for Leah's uh, Leah's favoritism, and so that's what Reuben's probably doing here is he's he's making it to where uh, Leah, his mother, could could be favorite. The Bible is full of wonderful details that have very little devotional value for us sometimes, but it's. I want to be able to explain it to you so that you can see it. Uh, so it's not going well for Jacob. And lastly, this passage records his father Isaac's death, 30 years after we thought it might happen. So things are going very poorly for Jacob. On the other hand, we look at chapter 36, which is um, Esau's um, genealogy. Okay, so the whole thing, I'm not going to read the whole thing, obviously, but this is just a very detailed genealogy of Esau, who came to be known as the father of Edom, a a great nation in uh, the ancient Near East. And Esau's really prospered, uh, so much so to where he and Jacob have to part ways, like Abraham and Lot, and Esau leaves this really great legacy, he becomes the father of the nation of Edom, and when you look at history, Edom may have been more prosperous than Israel in the early days, because what we see Israel do in just a few short years is they all have to go to Egypt to survive the famine. And they become slaves there, and we, all, we know the history. Many of us know the history there. If not, hang around long enough, you'll hear it. Um, Edom does not have to run for the famine. And so in many ways, they're more prosperous than Israel. They've been given these great gifts. They, they're able to stay in the land. And if, we're, if worldly success is all we're looking at, it would appear as though Esau might actually be favored here. And I've heard one person put it like this. Worldly greatness springs up more quickly than godly greatness. Worldly greatness springs up more quickly than godly greatness. When Jacob looks at this, we don't get any sense that he feels jealous or anything like that. The Lord's blessed him tremendously still. But there's, it's difficult to get a full picture of what God is doing here. Edom becomes this prosperous nation that is just a thorn in Israel's side throughout most of their history. I can go through a lot of different stories, but I'll I'll spare you for now. And the rivalry between Jacob and Esau, Israel and Edom, it leads all the way to the time of Jesus. When an Edomite king by the name of Herod the Great issues an edict to kill every child born in Bethlehem in hopes of destroying the Israelite king, Jesus of Nazareth. This rivalry you can trace all the way to the New Testament. Just like Jacob, Jesus did not see a great deal of worldly success. Many saw him, Jacob had way more worldly success than Jesus had even and Jesus died at what feels like an early age to me these days of 33. He died without any worldly possessions, being stripped of even the clothing on his shoulders. His friends abandon him as he's led to the cross. And yet this is the picture of ultimate greatness and ultimate godliness. Worldly greatness springs up more clo- more quickly and godly greatness. The result of a heart committed to the Lord does not always yield worldly success. But it always, always yields peace that transcends understanding. The result of a heart constantly recommitting itself to the Lord does not always yield comfort and security But it always, always yields an experience of the Father's love. You see, Jesus came so that we might experience the love that God the Father has had for Jesus the Son throughout eternity past. And that when we trust in Him, we are embraced and affirmed by God. That we get to experience this love. And friends, the blessings of Jacob... The many blessings that we read about, these promises that we read about, they pale in comparison to what we've received in Christ. Because when you trust in Christ, you're given the entire inheritance. You become in on the Trinity, you, you get an inside view of what it means to be the beloved child of God. And Jacob only understood in part what we get to understand in full, because we know the, the true child of God, the true Jacob the true promised one. Friends, no matter where you are in life, I want to invite you to rededicate your life to Jesus today. Whether this is the first time and you're saying, hey, I've been going my own way for a long time. It's time for me to turn. It's time for me to, I'm hearing the word of the Lord calling to me to go to Bethel, to go to the house of the Lord. Today is the day, go to Bethel. Go to the house of the Lord, rededicate yourself to him. If it's your thousandth time to do this. If it's your time to lay yourself down, to say, you know, the current of my own selfishness has been dragging me along and it's time for me to point back toward the Lord, join me in recommitting yourself. Evaluate your heart. Repent of the other gods in your life. Cast them out. Bury them under some tree in Shechem, okay? And seek the face of God. I want to lead us in a prayer. And this is the prayer that David used when he... Committed adultery and murder, secondhand murder, kind of. And he finally realized his sin, and he repented. And this, these are the words they use. Turn with me to Psalm fifty-one, if you have your Bibles. And I want to just lead us in this prayer. No matter where you are, call out to the Lord now and receive His grace. Hear the word of the Lord, the prayer of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. Pray this with me, church. Don't say it, just pray it, okay? According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions To me, the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing loud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and may my mouth declare your praise. One of the ways that we constantly recommit ourselves to the Lord is by receiving a communion meal. And this is like a recommitment ceremony every week. When we receive the communion meal, we're saying, Jesus, your death is enough for me. I I live for you. So church, let's stand as we process this, as we consider what it would take for us to commit ourselves to God. Pray with me. Father, we pray that as we consider what you are calling us to give up, what you are calling us to forsake, that we would do so earnestly. God, we pray that you would give us a heart of repentance, a heart of joy, that you would blot out our transgressions and restore to us the joy of your salvation. And God, may we commit our ways to following you. We know that it's never too late. And so, God, we pray for all those here that they might enjoy what it means to be called a child of God. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.